Sigmund Freud is the poster boy of psychoanalysis. Who are the other characters who influenced this revolution? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host. And with me today is Dr. George McCary. Dr. McCary is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and the Director of the Institute for the History of Psychiatry at Cornell Weill Medical College. He's also an Adjunct Associate Professor at Rockefeller University and on the faculty of Columbia's Psychoanalytic Center. Aside from private practice, Dr. McCary is researching the psychotherapeutic process and the history and theory of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. McCary. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us about some of Freud's fellow revolutionaries in the psychoanalytic movement. He, he seems to get all the attention, but I know there were others. Yes, there were. And, and in fact, there's so many, it's going to be hard for me to choose. You know, what I try to show in the book is that Freud is part of a whole group of people coming from philosophy, science, and medicine who are all after the same prey. They're trying to figure out how to make a science of the soul, a science of inner life. And that far from being alone in the hunt, Freud has many, many other people along with him. Then once he pulls together his theory, many people come to Freud from those other areas of interest and build a movement. They help develop the movement, and many of their contributions actually are more lasting than some of Freud's. So it's it's a cast of characters that is really quite vast. I could give you some examples from the beginning, some of the most important people. One was a man named Eugen Bloiler. Bloiler would become famous for coining the term schizophrenia. And he was a Zurich doctor who had many of the same interests as Freud. He was interested in Darwin and evolutionary biology. He was interested in strange inner states that could be brought forward by hypnosis. And he was interested in how sexuality affected inner life. Well, Bloiler found Freud very early on, and they had both written about similar things. They published in the same journals. And he started a hub of Freudian activity around 1900 in Zurich, which would bring in famously Carl Jung and many others. And in fact, they ended up being the place to go to study Freudian ideas in the early years of the 20th century. So many of the international followers that would become famous as Freudians became Freudians when they went to Zurich as medical students or as young doctors, studied with Bloiler, studied with Jung, and then were spat out of the Zurich hospital as ardent Freudians. This was a critical, critical building block for the movement. And so Bloiler and Jung are, are very critical in that way. And can you tell us more about how the group split into the different factions? Yeah, well, actually, we can follow Bloiler and Jung's story because it's very instructive. The beginning of the Freudian movement, say 1900 to 1910, it was really a jumble. You could be in the movement if you adopted any of Freud's ideas. You could take the earliest Freud, the stuff on hysteria. You could take some of the other stuff. You could pick and choose. You didn't have to take the whole thing. And by 1905, Freud had come to a kind of integration of his ideas that all pointed to the fact that the mind was undergirded by sexual forces, psychosexuality in a word. But he didn't force everyone to accept it. And in fact, 
the Zurich group, which had become the most prominent group, was very not so sure they liked the sexual part, not so sure they could abide by the idea that the unconscious was dominated by sexual drives. And so they merrily went on their way, being Freudians, not really accepting all of psychosexuality. What happened was, and I think I'm the first person to point this out, is that in 1910, when the Zurichers are starting to get attacked, their way of rebutting psychiatrists and scientists is to say, we accept part of Freud, we don't accept all of Freud. And to cut off this line of retreat, the Freudians decided that they would make a group, the International Psychoanalytical Association, and they would insist that if you were going to be part of this group, you had to accept libido theory. You had to accept the whole thing. Now, that was in 1910, and almost overnight, the, the movement schismed. So Bloiler said this wasn't scientific, that he didn't think that there was proof. So clearly uh, that libido dominated the unconscious. He left. Soon enough, Adler, who had a different idea, felt that aggression was the most important driving force inside people. He left. And finally, Carl Jung left. So all of the whole Zurich hub of the Freudians was gone. Freud's major kind of most prominent theoretician other than himself in Vienna, Adler, was gone. And the whole movement split based on this demand that you accept their vision of the contents of the unconscious. So really it was a seminal moment that said, is this scientific? Is this a demand for a belief, or is there scientific proof? And it led to a regrouping after World War II, which again, I think that historians have missed, where they said, you know, we can't have an, a movement that's just based on demanding a belief in the unconscious. We have to structure the movement in another way. And how they did that is something I spent a great deal of time trying to show in the book to try to create a more pluralistic more open community. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George McCary. We are discussing his book, Revolution in Mind, The Creation of Psychoanalysis. George, is it possible that we would have never heard of Freud without Jung? You know, it's a, it's a provocative and interesting question. I don't know that I would go so far as never heard, but surely without the Zurich School, the Freudians would have been a much smaller group. The Zurichers did experiments that seemed to show, using at what was at that time cutting-edge psychological laboratories, that the Freudian unconscious existed. And that data, which they published again and again and again between 1903 and 1906, paper after paper after paper, forced all of the doubters, and there were many, to take this seriously. And so that was one critical thing that made medical students followers of the Freudians, made young doctors followers of the Freudians. It also made for attacks that then ended up heightening Freud's name in the general population because now he was the debate about Freud was on everybody's lips. So would we have never heard about Freud without Jung? I don't know. Would the movement have been much more diminished if the Zurichers, including Jung, had never jumped in? Absolutely. And possibly Freud would have been forgotten. Wonderful ideas by themselves don't necessarily get remembered. Sadly, people have wonderful ideas, and if they don't have people who take them up, often their ideas get lost. 
Freud developed a movement, and it was critical to have these Zurichers and Carl Jung aboard to create that movement. What would most people be surprised to learn about Freud? You know, I think it would be surprising for most people who I think think of him as the bearded guy in those cartoons from some weird place to realize how common some of his concerns were, how obvious some of these concerns were to many other people who were in the same hunt, in the same game, that putting Freud back in his context, not just looking at him biographically, but really putting him alongside of all of the other allies and enemies and competitors in the contest of ideas, shows how, yes, this man was brilliant. There is no doubt about it. And he might have been more brilliant than almost anyone else in the movement. But there were a lot of other very smart people who were very much engaged with the same issues. Freud did not make these issues up out of thin cloth or out of his own genius. They were there in the culture. I think that would probably be surprising to most people and hopefully fascinating to them. And you do that so well in the book. I think that certainly in most of our minds, Freud equals uh, psychoanalysis. And clearly in your book, you state the case that that's not necessarily true. You chose to end your book in the 40s. Uh, Why was that? Well, you know, the, the way that I thought of the book was that we had lots of biographies of Freud. We had books about psychoanalysis in America, Argentina, other places. But there was no book that really tracked the emergence of psychoanalysis in its birthplace, and that was Western and Central Europe. So the book is about the emergence of this thing in a place, and that place, of course, has the worst possible fate with World War II. And all of the culture, the institutions that supported psychoanalysis, the contexts that gave it broader meaning were wiped away with World War II and the Holocaust. So the end of the book is really the wiping out of this community and the way that it emigrates to London, New York, other places in the Americas, and takes on new life, really, in foreign places. Let's zoom to the present for a moment, if we could. And for our listeners, either themselves or for their patients, why today, you know, in 2008, why would a person seek psychoanalysis? If I could, I'd split it up into two questions. Why would you seek psychotherapy, that most of the psychotherapies are informed by psychoanalysis, and why would you seek psychoanalysis per se? So the difference is that psychoanalysis is a three to five time a week process. It's very labor intensive. It's on a couch. And it is usually a treatment. I think it's a fantastic treatment for people who are training to be psychotherapists. I think it's the best treatment for people who are training to be in the field. It's a great treatment, I think, for people who have character problems that are unclear to them. Why can't I have a relationship? Why do I keep getting fired? Why do I, am I prone to these sudden rages? Why can't I have a successful, intimate relationship? Those people should consider psychoanalytically oriented treatments. Whether they're able to go into a psychoanalysis per se or an intensive psychotherapy, that I think is a a harder question that has to do with resources and where you live and is there a psychoanalytic center. But I think the critical question is to notice that those are the things that psychoanalysis treats and that there is help out there. How many psychoanalytic centers are there in the United States these days? Do you have a ballpark idea? You know, I think that there are probably somewhere around 30, and they're mostly in cities. There's a lot on the two coasts. But nonetheless, 
there are people who are trained to do psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy throughout the country. And I'm sure that at, at good university medical centers, at places where there are residencies, this is being taught as a way to help patients who come to you, after all, with problems that medications can't touch. And a terrific reminder for all of us in these days of managed care that medicine doesn't necessarily treat everything. Yes. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I want to thank our guest, Dr. George McCary. We have been discussing his book, Revolution in Mind, The Creation of Psychoanalysis. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 